Full disclosure, I have Reaper and I'm pretty freaking awesome. We could do things with audio that other people in the blind community may have had to spend thousands to pull off. On That Real Blind Tech Show, we do not encourage any kind of horse whipping whatsoever. Uh, not even for the horse. If you don't enjoy your stuff when you play it back, why would you expect anybody else to? You have to listen to yourself podcasting. Otherwise, you're not going to improve. You're listening to That Real Blind Tech Show. Today we're here. Yeah, don't laugh. Don't laugh. Big smile. Big smile. But don't laugh. Today we're here with a name that's going to be familiar to a decent amount of people in the blind tech world, Derek Lane. How you doing today, Derek? Oh, man, I'm great. How are you? Hey, Derek, welcome to That Real Blind Tech Show. How are you? It's good to be here, Ed. It's that's good to be here. Always good, good to get the, the, the name of the show in there. Nice plug, Ed. Way to plug the show and everything. Good but, times. Uh, good we've got Derek uh, here today for a multitude of reasons. He's part of our Trailblazer series, and fortunately this time, Ed, I got the name of the series correct, I believe. I think you did. Kudos. I, I have to razz you from afar because you guys made up the name uh, and made up the series, and one of you got the thing wrong that you made up. That would be me. That would be me. Yeah. Yep. yep you obviously yep. are not a regular listener. That was the intern's fault that I got the name wrong. They do all the research and prov- I'm like a trained monkey. They have to put the notes in front of my face and everything. You may not touch my monkey. No, but I'm a regular enough listener to know how bad the coffee is. That is true. But we're also going to dive into editing because Derek has been teaching me editing. So if you hate my editing, no growing pains, you know who to blame, me. First, we want to go back, Derek, and talk a little bit about what were your first experiences with assistive technology? The Lions Club bought me a computer when I was three. Actually, I came to learn later it was something out of somebody's office. And this thing was a clunker. It was some IBM thing, no hard drive, one floppy drive. And I mean the big floppy, floppy, floppy drives, the, like the five and a quarter or whatever the size of it is. And uh, this thing called RDS Learn. And it would talk when you would press keys on this funky little matrix thing. It was like with a bunch of plastic dots on it. And you could make it say stuff that people would type in. And that Did was... it say, Welcome to the Matrix? No. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. But it uh, it would say nice, fun things when, when Dad would mess around with it. Like, Mary had a little lamb. She fed it castor oil. Every time it turned around, it fertilized the soil. Stuff like that. Okay. Um, so, you know, just depending on who had put text into it would depend on what it would say when, you know, I'd push the buttons. So it was kind of helpful because, oh, it's a computer, but in all practicalities, sort of useless. I didn't actually have anything useful to me that really was assistive in full till I was 12. I got uh, JAWS for Windows and DOS and Omni 1000, which was the precursor to Kurzweil 1000. And a scanner. And I thought I was hot stuff, man. <laughs> I thought I was freaking hot stuff. When I got into high school and I finally got this uh, thing called the internet. I've been going to this high school for seven and a half years. I'm no dummy. 
um, people stopped being scared that there'd be viruses all over the place, and I was able to get online. I started networking with uh, other blind people and eventually kind of warmed my way into beta testing JAWS for Freedom Scientific because they were fascinated with just some of the more elementary things I was doing with audio, SoundForge. This is about 2000. And, you know, oh, let's have a high school kid on our beta team that, you know, we can promote and, and oh, he goes to Freedom High School. Oh, that's awesome. Freedom Scientific, yay. What was Freedom High School? Is that just a local high school? That or? was just my local high okay. school, yeah. Because I never went through a blind school. I always went through public school. Okay. And I'm thankful for that. <laughs> Very. Uh, not to hate on anybody that was going through a Braille jail, but I like my heart that. goes out to you. I like Because you guys had to deal with a lot of stuff that a lot of people don't in, in boarding situations and stuff. Um, so it was fun. I met people like Glenn Gordon and Chris Hofstetter and... Uh, Chris and I still talk from time to time, actually. And I actually was able to help Glenn a couple years ago with some audio projects, too, now that I think about it. Um, so I still have connections going back to those days. And in college, I got my communications degree and music minor. How stereotypical, right? Yeah. Um, but it was fun because everything was starting to switch over. So you had either really old audio gear or new and, at the time, inaccessible audio gear, because it was right at that dark age on the Mac where Outspoken was dead and voiceover hadn't been born. Yeah, Joe and Ricky, actually Joe let us know that the Mac just completely killed all voice and everything, and Ed and I were not aware of that and everything. And if that had happened to me, I too would be skeptical to going back into using an Apple computer. I don't think it's fair. Yeah, that was kind of eye-opening because we often wondered why you know some people in the blind community just were just reluctant to embrace Apple, and we hadn't realized because we, you know, you and I, Brian, were kind of new to the blindness game and losing our vision later in life, and to hear those stories, I mean, I know how you are, I know how I am, I'd probably be the exact same way. I'm spiteful on a social network. Imagine how spiteful I'd be against Apple had they taken my voice away. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true. So we heard about the, the college thing and everything, and that's incredible that you were involved with Freedom Scientific and the beta testing program at such an early age. Uh, you also were with Serotech as well, so can you give us a little history of that? That's when I was starting to demo some of my work in Reaper. Mm. And it was just mashups. It was just, you know, taking songs and kind of sampling them and, and chopping them up and putting bits of the songs together, you know, where you could take anything that had the same chord progression. You take the instrumental from one and the vocal from another, and you move the tempo and the pitch around so that you've got the instrumentalists and the vocalists from different groups working together. So you can make Bon Jovi sound like Rage Against the Machine? Is that what you were doing? Uh, you you might actually have to think about that. It might be possible. I'll get back to you on that. I'll Good see what know. I can do. I was demonstrating this stuff on the Reaper list because Reaper was new to a lot of people, including me. And I just embraced it and just ran with it. And Mike Calvo heard some of my work. And so he contacted me and I actually went to give him some Reaper training for about a week. And then he just decided, well, screw it. Uh, I'll just rather have you and Patrick Perdue do the work as opposed to me learn how to do it or get 
anybody else to do it because you guys got this. And so from late 2011 to um, mid, late 2014, actually, we both did the audio for the now deceased Sarah Talk Podcast Network. Mm. I think that's when I first heard your name, obviously, all those years ago. Sarah Tech was my, I guess, introduction. It just coincided with the time where I had started to use a full-blown screen reader as well as assistive technology and everything as my vision was deteriorating. So you obviously have a background in music dating back to college. And how did you initially end up getting into audio editing? What were those first days like? Well, I mean, the first days were, you know, when I was a kid and I would have tape recorders lined up and clips stacked on tapes and try to do transitions and all kinds of crazy nonsense. Because... um. I live out in the middle of the country, and especially then it was very Which rural. Which country? And this one. Okay. The good old checking. United States of America. <laughs> Gotta say America. 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 That's right. Live out far enough where you have to have a, a turbine on your house and an exercise bike <laughs> attached to it so you can pedal and get the electricity going. <laughs> a lot of people seem to have the idea that everybody from the South is married to their sister and has seen a UFO. <laughs> Well, I'm just dating my sister, and I couldn't swear it wasn't a weather balloon. I... Okay, it's not that bad. But digitally, like actually messing around with computers and, and audio on computers was probably 1999. Doing anything real that actually sounded good mid-2000s up. <laughs> <laughs> what drew you to audio and editing? I would just hear stuff as a kid on movies or in audiobooks or, you know, on radio. How does that work? How did they do that? How do they do this? How did they... And I just started messing around with equipment that I had, um, just boom boxes and stuff, and did my best to try to clone the stuff I was hearing with my little keyboards and, you know, let's hook this into that and see what happens and just try stuff and see what it sounds like. And then, you know, when the internet was introduced into my life... That just made all that stuff easier. Mm. At the same time, I'm actually grateful for the extended period of time where I was offline because it allowed me to be really creative, um, where otherwise I might not have been. For example, in eighth grade, I had to do this science project, an ecology thing, like preserving the environment and blah, 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 and, and, and ways things could, cons you know, factories or whatever could conserve energy sure. or allocate resources. Okay. Well... I said, let me do a video. And, and of course, the teacher's, ah, yeah, it's cute. Okay. <laughs> well, I had two VCRs, a TV, and a stereo, and that's all I needed for this to actually work. Because I hooked the stereo out into the audio of the VCR. And at the time, there was a song that was somewhat new by Alabama. It was like, it was about the environment. Leave some green up above us, or... No, blue up above us, leave some green on the ground. You know, what? I don't know, I hadn't heard the song in like... So they have more than that one song. Uh, what kind of music do you usually have here? Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and western. Anyway, see Country Roots coming out? See what I mean? We don't get a lot of their music in New York City, do we, Ed? No, that's right. I, I, I lived in the South for a little bit, Brian, so I'm into my Southern rock. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, so you obviously were an early innovator for accessibility using Reaper. How do you feel the accessible features of, of audio editing have evolved over the past uh, years? When a lot of us were starting to get into this stuff, 
We're talking late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. You had screen readers that would grab the screen, like the information written to the screen as it was being sent there. And so there was only a whole bunch of ways that could go wrong, and many of them did go wrong. And so with programs like Sonar, for example, you had to have your screen resolution set to a very specific value, and windows had to be in a very specific place on the screen for JAWS to do anything with that particular piece of software. And if any of these exact conditions weren't met, the thing would throw a fit. What? Like this? <laughs> and um, that experience was duplicated in a lot of other software as well, where you're dealing with just uh, grabbing text from the screen. Now, that's not the way most accessibility projects work. Most accessibility situations are uh, where programs are interacting through APIs. In other words, application programming interfaces. So instead of caring what's, you know, instead of asking the computer, okay, what are you showing on this part of the screen? The screen reader can ask a particular program, what are you doing right now? Oh, I'm just letting the user know that you, they just made a track in Reaper. Oh, okay, I'll tell them, you know. And so there's no screen grabbing. It's just software talking to each other. And that makes things a lot quicker. That gives us the ability to have a lot more information and uh, delivered very accurately, no matter what the platform is. Windows, Mac, etc. If people are using accessibility APIs when they're writing their software, it's going to work by default. Now, you have been involved with Reaper for years, it sounds like. Was Reaper accessible from day one, or has it something that's gained uh, fantastic accessibility over the years? You could mess around with it and tear your hair out and maybe record a couple of tracks in the process. So it sort of wasn't really worth considering until about 2010, when a guy from Russia made this plugin called ReAccess. And Scott Chesworth and a couple of other people got together and through various translators uh, helped this guy refine the plugin. That's why I told you, touch nothing but your bunch of cowboys. And that uh, was what our first access to Reaper was, ReAccess. And two years after the release of ReAccess is when I also started teaching through the Cisco Academy for the Vision Impaired based in Perth, Australia, which I did with uh, a couple of other instructors for about from 12 to 17, so what, five years? Yeah, because of the uh, innovations in accessibility. It was a big deal. I imagine so. Without spending a fortune, we could do things with audio that other people in the blind community may have had to spend thousands to pull off. You know, no more buying JAWS and sonar and various other accessibility solutions to tie those two products together. Now you have a computer running whatever version of Windows you happen to have at whatever screen resolution you happen to use with whatever screen reader you want and Reaper. The cost of entry went way down and that, that brought a lot of other people on board that 
were in situations where they couldn't have otherwise afforded or didn't want to pay money. Hey, don't forget about that $8,000 Braille keyboard you have going along with your device. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course you got to have the, the Braille display. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's really good stuff, and it's uh, it's amazing that this really opened it up because there's a lot of people in the blind community that are, that are drawn to wanting to work with audio because it just sits well with, with the fact that we don't see, and hearing and listening is, is key to us, and there's a lot of students that are involved with music, so they're all interested in doing something with audio recording and editing. Mm-hmm. With uh, Reaper, and we should say Reaper now also is fully accessible on the Mac because I've been learning it on the Mac. When did Reaper first start working well with the Mac? I know you've got to install certain plugins to get it going as well as change some of the settings, but when did Reaper really start becoming fully accessible on the Mac? A couple of years after the initial development of Osara, which is not Mufasa's lost twin, or a Pokemon, Osara, is a plugin that stands for the Open Source Accessibility for the Reaper application. The, the Reaper community loves their acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> when Jamie started working with a couple of other developers and they figured out some ways to make the same code base, or roughly the same code base, work for both operating systems, then he could develop for the Mac even without owning one. Don't ask me how that stuff works. I don't know. Is that Jamie from NVDA? Yes, it is. Jamie from NV Access, now uh, Mozilla, I believe is where he's working now. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, you just swap out that control and command key in most instances, and uh, you get the same behavior with Reaper on the Mac and everything. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you've been using, it sounds like, Reaper since, what, 2011? Or was it before that? Dude? It was late. It was uh, mid-2010. I threw myself I threw myself into Reaper full force, mainly to avoid uh, some uh, problems I was having with the, a lady at the particular time. As opposed to being an adult and addressing them, I kind of decided, oh, I'm going to play with the computer and learn audio <laughs> more things. So, I mean, you know, people do what they do for the reasons they do, and it worked out well because obviously I'm here using and teaching this stuff like 11 years later. Well, why did you choose Reaper? Because we've heard, you know, Audacity is mostly accessible, Pro Tools on the Mac. Why did you choose Reaper initially? Well, I could never... I was never patient enough to get Sonar to work, honestly. Mm. Audacity was cool, and it was free, and you could overdub audio in it. So you could record, if you're doing music, you could record one instrument, and while that's playing, you could uh, bring up another track and then play on top of that, you know, and then just stack up your music in your mix. But there was a couple of key things that you couldn't do in Audacity at the time. You couldn't punch in easily, at least I couldn't figure out how. So if you made a mistake halfway through, you'd have to take it from the top. At least on that track. But I wanted something I could punch in with, and I wanted something that would let me use some other plugins that I had on my system. And a plugin is basically an effect or some other tool that another developer writes that can add itself as functionality to another piece of software. So Audacity had its own weird little plug-in infrastructure, and none of the effects were particularly great at the time. And so it was, it was okay, but it just wasn't the level that I wanted to commit to in terms of sure. you know, trying to 
produce with. And then Reaper came along, and <laughs> the rest is history. Yeah, and I recently heard from somebody who's doing audio editing and using Audacity on the Mac, and they can't even adjust the, I guess, the DBs in their noise gate. So there's still, obviously, Audacity's not fully accessible and everything where Reaper is. Something I, I guess I've never asked you about Reaper, with Reaper being so reliant on the plugins and Osara, and it not being built into the physical Reaper program, are you ever concerned that the accessibility for Reaper could go away? Uh, Honestly, right now, no. Uh, during the time where we had lost contact with the developers of Reaccess and in terms of someone stepping up and making another solution. Hey, fairness to them, they could have been in a Russian prison camp for all. Or ran over by a bus or any number of other things. Have you ever been in a, in a Turkish prison? I mean, there are all kinds of conspiracy theories, like the guy was working and doing this stuff on company time, and maybe that code got owned by the company because he was on company's time. So, you know, I mean, there are all kinds of conspiracy theories hey, about hey, what... If you're here and I'm here, isn't it our time? You know, I've been thinking about this, Mr. Han. If I'm here and you're here, doesn't that make it our time? Indeed. Very, very, very true. But now, because it's open source, because all the Reaper developers know who we are and what we're doing, they are all about helping us help ourselves. Help me help you. Help me help you. So they will include things in the API that we can grab with Osara to use the program. They don't really have an interest in completely changing the UI and the hotkeys and everything the program uses by default at this point. The product's too mature to completely do a rewrite of the interface. But what they are happy to do is to kind of give us the tools we need to make it happen. Well, that's good. And that's a lot more reliable anyway, I think. Yeah. Because we're not beholden to them for, oh, they changed this. They took that out. Now we can't even, you know, use this anymore or that anymore. Well, it seems to be fully functional. It seems to work well. I know a lot of people who are using Reaper, and you've been an instructor now for a while with it. Uh Without naming names and not exposing present company, <laughs> you have any good humorous teaching stories for audio editing that you could share? Well, there's the occasional time, if people are paying attention, where they'll catch me making a mistake. They enjoy that. People enjoy that. You've never made a mistake. <laughs> um, not with you yet. Maybe. Not yet. But it does happen uh, from time to time. Nobody's perfect, especially not me. Um, but let's see. What about you, though, for humorous stories in... Your editing endeavors. I, I do have one that's kind of funny. Well, uh, you tell yours humorous. and I'll think, about, uh, I'll think about mine. Okay. Well, these stories dealt with the, the Saratech days. And um, what happened during the Saratech uh, time was, you know, Reaper was developing and new stuff was starting to happen, but Reaccess wasn't following along. So there would be magical mystery things that would change, and I wouldn't know. There was an interview with a particular company whose name I legitimately do not recall. And it was something that Patrick had edited. So all I had to do was just slot that particular interview in that episode of Triple Click Home. 
just because those podcasts were so long and there was a lot of moving parts, everybody would just sort of check over everybody's work anyway. It wasn't like a paranoid thing. It's just a everybody makes mistakes thing. So I cranked the project rate up just so that I could hear the interview very quickly just to make sure it sounded okay. Everything was there. It was all good. Reaper has this um, concept as well as Pro Tools and several other digital audio workstations called automation. And automation basically is a means of capturing adjustments you make to different parts of your project along the way. So you might not want something to stay at the same volume all the time. You might want the volume to come down at certain points or go up at certain points. You know, just little adjustments like that. Well, somehow I had automated the project rate. So when I saved this thing out and Jamie was listening to it, he writes me this really awesome email. And he's like, I was going to speed up the interview with such and such and such and such. Uh, but before I could get to the stream to do that, you had done it for me, which while that was a great thing, it's probably something that people should, you know, <laughs> have done by their own choice. <laughs> and then I had to figure out, oh, God, um, what what uh, what what caused that? Um, one time in the middle of this uh, presentation because I had used the project template for a previous podcast. The podcast before it, which was shorter, had ended with this nice epic explosion that I'd put together because it was the end of 2012. We were all supposed to die. Oh, was that the Mayan calendar? Mayan calendar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I had forgotten to scrap that. And so right in the middle of this next podcast during an interview, there's this huge explosion that just completely <laughs> interrupts everything. And, you know, here's everybody just sort of talking underneath this thing, like no big deal. Um, so that had to get corrected. Just little things like that that happen in in editing where, you know, if you're in a hurry, silly things happen like that. Listening to what you're saying, obviously, uh, but I was thinking, trying to think of some just, and nothing really humorous, but I guess it was in the 90s when I was working, I download movie clips. And as people know, I, I like to use a movie clip here or there on our podcast, which I'll be doing on this show. There's nothing you can do about it, because I'm a madman! Well, some of these clips are from the 90s, and uh, I found the, the folder where I have them left over from a PC. And sometimes when I go to load it to see what it, the actual clip is, I think I come close to blowing my eardrums out, because the audio levels were so bad on the movie clip, so I have to be a little cautious yes. in that. Obviously, editing with headphones on. Mm -hmm. and it, sometimes it scares you. You know, it's so yeah. loud, it's 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 startling. So that that's been one thing. And I guess, you know, not funny, but we mentioned we had Joe Steinkamp and Ricky on. Well, I somehow, you know, that was about the third episode that I might have been editing. And I guess I, I didn't have the commands fully down. I was confused about ripple on, ripple off, all tracks, ripple per track. And I had messed up the timing, so people were over-talking each other, and I created about 20 additional hours of work for myself. Oh, no. So that was, <laughs> looking back, you could laugh about it. At the time, I was like, oh, my God, I don't know if I want to put the amount of time in for this and everything. Ed, you remember me 
saying you're not going to believe the amount of hours I spent editing this show. Oh yeah, you? oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember when we did iAccessVO. I mean, I think I was editing that show using Goldwave because it was really just the two of us. So it was, uh, sure. you know, one track, left channel, right channel, which works fine for just two people. Goldwave yeah. is great. I love Goldwave. Yeah, for yeah. Just slicing and dicing, it's great. It's fantastic. I think as as a program for somebody who's just starting out, I think it's great. The keyboard commands all work well. It's got a great menu system. Um, and it's something that even though I hadn't touched it in a few years, I went back and did something with it recently. And it's intuitive. So I, while I couldn't remember the keyboard commands, I was able to do everything I needed to do just using the menu system. So it worked well. And Goldweight is specific to the PC, we should just say. I don't believe it's on the Mac, correct? Actually, I know it's on iOS as well. I haven't played with it there, but it does exist on iOS. What are your thoughts every few months you get one of these editing programs popping up on iOS and some people, oh, I edit on iOS. What are your thoughts about the current state of iOS audio editing apps and people that edit on the iPhone? To be honest, I haven't really stayed up with that. There are a couple of programs I do use. The first is Audio Memos. Great program. And the reason I use that is because you can turn off all of the processing that the phone will do to the audio. So in most cases, when our phones are kind of leveling out audio and everything like that, that sounds fine. But on occasions when you want to do it yourself, because you're either a control freak, you have a lot of time on your hands, or both. You guys are freaks. You, uh, would rather use your own limiters and your own compressors and things to process the audio up for your podcast. And Audio Memos will let you go into the settings and disable the processing that the iPhones and iPads do by default. It also allows you to save in like a million different file formats. So whatever you're inclined to use or store your audio as, you can have Audio Memos do. I'm not talking about voice memos built into the iPhone. And another thing I like to use is Backpack Studio because it not only does the whole bypass processing thing, but it has processing of its own that you can choose to use. And you can add carts into your main screen and then just double tap the elements like you have a little soundboard there. And so with its streaming add-on, you literally could connect to a server, play your theme, and just do your broadcast as a one-shot or whatever with your other elements you'd be using along the way as carts. Just play your outro cart and then disconnect and have the whole thing done. By either streaming it or you know recording it in Backpack. I think you turned me on to Backpack initially, Ed, years ago. Yeah, I think that was the program that came out of another program that we originally used on the iPad when we, you know, first few episodes we recorded of our podcast. It was Boss Jock originally, and then it turned into yes, Backpack. Yeah, yeah, Boss Jock. I think we we did our first ten episodes of iAccessVO using Boss Jock. I could never wrap my head around the whole cart thing and everything. I I probably could now now that I have a better understanding of editing and production and that sort of thing. I remember I had a lot of issues back then wrapping my whole head around the the cart thing. Obviously, you've your whole life and career has been around working with audio. What do you like most about audio editing these days? Honestly, <laughs> the people that I meet and get to teach and some of the crazy stuff I get to hear. I got to ask, what crazy stuff do you get to hear? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've done audio restoration and still do. So, you know, take old tapes and records and, and clean up all the static and noise and everything. And so 
you know, I've heard family histories, you know, people just uh, fondly sitting around recalling stories of how, you know, when they were kids and, you know, they would go play in the barn or whatever when they were supposed to be in bed and then get horse whipped by their dad, oh, you know, to keep them in line and all these things that are by the way crazy um, let me cut you off right there on that real blind tech show we do not encourage or condone any kind of horse whipping whatsoever uh not even for the horse but uh, go go right ahead yeah i mean this dude was talking about how you know oh man i was out in the barn you know he's messing it just getting the ducks all upset and dad came over there and he just whooped me with the i mean he was just going on about i mean just the stuff that i i you know i've heard just by taking people's audio and and cleaning it up you know and then some horrible music really badly recorded music really badly performed music but it's like you know ethel's fiddle recital in 1972 (laughs) so you know whatever you know and then i get to hear some really cool stuff Oh, you know, here's a jazz festival or, or here's, you know, here's a missionary talking about going to some country. I can't remember where, but like there were bugs that like if you got bit by them, you would like swell up huge quickly and, you know, die within minutes. If and you... spread a global virus. Something. I mean, it's people talking about stuff, um, you know, that kind of thing is is what I find cool. The technology aspect of it. What can be done with it? What cool things we can do from, uh, you know, even without being able to uh, use the mouse. You know, that kind of stuff is neat. So I have a childish sense of humor. And uh, one of the things that I was able to do with some of this audio editing software that I have is uh, I took one of my tapes that I had as a kid. You know, you had all these books on tape or read-along things. Well, one of them was the Berenstain Bears Forget Their Manners. And at the end of each page, there would be this beep that was the signal for the kid to turn the page if they were reading the book along with the narrator on the tape. Well, I took the beep out and replaced it with a nice, healthy belch. <laughs> so here's this story talking about good manners, and the page turn signal is a burp, an epic, huge belch. And from the Lambda Moo team, Dudley Dawson. Booger. Booger. <laughs> And I thought I thought it was kind of cool. Um, so yes, I I I have a childish sense of humor. That kind of relates to Brian. You know, he loves putting his uh, his movie clip insert the show now. I can just picture him listening to it and giggling as he's doing it. <laughs> yeah, if he, oh man, if he ever got a hold of like Spectrum, you know, editing stuff where you could take sounds apart, uh, like that. That is something where I'm like, ooh, if I could only. If I only had the skill set, because uh, there was something I was working on where I'd, I'd like to take out, remove something and just have the audio focused on this, I have had that happen and everything. But people often ask me about audio editing and why does the editing part take so long? And the only thing I could base it on is I used to work in movie production. And when you're filming a movie, it could take six weeks to shoot principal photography on that movie. But it could then take six months to edit the final product. And editing, it just takes a lot of time if you want to get it perfect. What I do love about editing, even though it takes a great amount of time, is the creativity that it allows you. 
I am enjoying, I don't know how my brain works, but I have had about one or two movie clips pop into my head. I'm like, ooh, hopefully I'll remember that and everything, so we'll see if I do. But I love when I'm in the middle of editing and I'm like, ooh, you know what would go great here, which cracks me up. And then I go and find that clip and everything. I just, I've learned that you can't have somebody say four words, have a movie clip, have somebody say another four words, and you got to choose. You must choose. Choose wisely. For those of you who have said, I like it, but it's a little too much, I am going to dial it back in those instances. But I have really enjoyed thoroughly popping in the movie clips into our show, and I think it adds to the entertainment value. And if you keep them at their original 90s volume, it'll keep people awake. No, we, that's one of the first things I do is, and that's something I learned on my own, was how to turn command down arrow, command up arrow. That's simple and everything. Select the item first. Got to select the item first. That's it. There you go. So, uh, yeah, so I know, you know, podcasting has really grown as a entertainment medium, and it's getting more and more popular. And I must have at least one student, sometimes two students a week, will express to me their desire to get into podcasting or create their own podcast or something along those lines. So what advice do you have for them as to the best way for them to start out audio editing their own shows and recording their own shows? Well, there's an app called Just Press Record, and... I would give that as advice and then listen to it back. Jim Snowbarger, who's uh, the snowman, is one of the people that I have always looked up to in not just audio work, but in life in general. And during the times when I'm doing shows online, when I was first getting started, I would kind of complain that I wasn't getting a lot of listeners. And he asked me, well... Do you listen to your stuff back? And he's like, eh, no, I, I know what it does. I was there. And then he's like, maybe other people think the same thing. If you don't enjoy your stuff when you play it back, why would you expect anybody else to? And that shocked me for a little while. That was like, but because they're not me. But at the same time, he's right. If you're not into what you do, why in the world would anybody else be? Why would you expect anybody else to When be? I talk to people about podcasting, that is one of the number one things I tell people that have been podcasting or people that are looking into getting into podcasting is you have to listen to yourself podcasting. Otherwise you're not going to improve on your skills as a podcaster. I've picked up on words that I, and phrases that I use too much. And then I have to put a mental block in. Okay. Not everything is exciting and incredible and interesting. And I think a lot of people out there that do podcasts do not take the time to listen to their finished project. And that's why you hear a lot of people that don't really evolve as a podcaster. They don't evolve as a podcaster and neither does their audience, to be frank. Yeah, that's the one thing you know people have to learn too. Content may be king. But audio quality and presentation is, is as important. So I will struggle through a poor audio quality podcast if the content is super. But there are times where if the audio quality is bad, I don't care how interesting the content is. I just cannot, cannot partake. And you don't have to have thousands of dollars of equipment to sound good. That's true. And that's the one thing I see people do. They'll want to get into podcasting and they'll go out and they'll spend $1,500 on equipment to get started. I'm like, why? You haven't even gotten out of the box yet. Yeah. 
Get started with what you have, and then you can justify the expense of the equipment. It takes time to build an audience. It does. You know? there, there was an episode of the Connors recently. You know, and they're, they're a family that doesn't have a lot of money. And the guy wanted to start his own podcast, and he went out and dropped $4,000 on podcast equipment. And I'm thinking, I've been podcasting for seven years. I don't even know if I've spent $1,000 on my equipment. And uh, I think I've got all the equipment you need here and everything. So <laughs> it was just funny. It's funny when television tries to talk about podcasting and they can be so far off and everything. Well, you know, when everything was locked down around this time last year, I was listening to a webinar from Telos, which is one of the companies that do a lot of the communications type um, software and hardware that TV and radio stations use to like bring in, you know, phone calls and things like that. And they said, you know, this is a great time. You know, if, if this had to happen, this is the best time for it to happen because for, you know, only $1,500 or so, you could <laughs> equip yourself with a full broadcast console and everything you need. I'm like, no, about five. Yeah. Five, 600, money well spent, you're fine. If you need to do more specialized things, yeah, then then things get, you know, higher, sure. But just a general broadcast setup where you have a couple of nice bells and whistles for your audio and for your listeners. I think to, you're to, high. You know, I, yeah. Not high as drugs. It'd be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> high with your price, because I was just doing the math in my head, and we know math is not my strong suit. It was my understanding that there would be no math. <laughs> So I've got the Samsung Q8. I think I got that for about 90 bucks. I've got mm -hmm. the Behringer mixer, which I don't have hooked up right now, and I got that for about 90 bucks. And with the Reaper software, what was that, about 60 So outside of the computer, you're looking at 260 maybe, 250 Sure. I don't, and then I'm using an old set of Bose headphones now, which my mommy bought me many, many years ago, which are noise-canceling. I think, honestly, you could start out of the box for about 200 bucks. Don't go spending until you know that you're going to be doing this long-term. What do you think the percentage of podcasters that go out and spend $1,000 on equipment and stop after the third episode is? It's it's high. You know, yeah. it's high. I think I think the, the seventh episode is usually where... If you get past seven, you've got you know you'll see them go on to maybe twenty, twenty-two episodes or so. But you know they they pod fade usually after the sixth, seventh episode. Yep. So if you can make it, then you can start investing. But I mean, you did mention the headphones, you know. But little things like that add up. You know, cables. If you find, oh, I want to bring in a caller. How am I going to handle that? What software am I going to invest in to do that? Even if I don't spend a lot of money on the hardware to do it and I do it virtually through software, how much time am I going to sink into learning this or am I going to pay someone to teach me how to do it? That's true. The teaching with the editing for me, because you charge what, like uh, $1,500 an hour? <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Speaking of which, you've obviously worked on a lot of projects and we'll get your info in there, obviously, to give you a good plug and everything, but... Curious, what are some of the bigger projects besides teaching that real blind tech show how to edit? Can you mention any of the bigger <laughs> projects that you've uh, worked on throughout your career? Well, I've mixed a couple of albums. Not Jenny and the Fiddlers, though, right? No, no. And they uh, they had somebody that they wanted to do that that had some equipment held together with bailing wire that they were more familiar with, and we just let them do what they did. But um, 
no, there's a couple of albums that I mixed, one of which, uh, well, I didn't do all the mixing on, but there's a couple of Christmas albums that you can see. I think it's christmasreapers.bandcamp.com. It's basically volunteer efforts from the community to raise money for the Osar developers and things like that, just to kind of give them a thank you, you know, the musicians volunteer to do the music. People like Gianluca and I volunteer to do the mixing and mastering. And then all of the proceeds go to the developers as a thank you from the community. So those projects are online. A friend of mine that goes by Sammy Sweet Spirit, she did an album called Something for Everyone. I basically did about 90% of the mixing and mastering on that thing. Um, And Brian, you'll love this. One of her, you think you might have a fair few tracks in a podcast. One of her songs was 140 tracks. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Lots of instrumentation, lots of orchestration, lots of harmonies built up. How long did something like that take to put together? The mixing? Oh, hours. Hours per song. Easily. Hours per song. More than the 20 hours I spent on the Joe and Ricky (laughs) where I screwed up the timing of everything. I, I think it would match it. Maybe. Maybe match it. Oh, that's good. So, uh, now this has been great stuff. We have listeners, I'm sure, that are interested in some are starting a podcast, some are out there doing what they want to do. If someone wants to uh, learn how to use Reaper and wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way that they can do that? My website and YouTube channel are Lanes Audio, one word, L A N E S A U D I O. That's the YouTube channel. The website's lanesaudio.com. And I'm also teaching Reaper classes through IC Music, which you can find at icmusic.org, which is a pretty cool company um, itself, ran by Byron Harden. One question I do have to ask you, do I have the worst musical ear of anybody you've ever taught? (laughs) You said it. I I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to, but you said it. Hey, I'm not not ashamed by it. (laughs) And I cannot pick up beat rhythm. I have zero rhythm, Ed. And, uh, you know, like I said, I've proved it on Beverly Hills 90210 back in the 90s. And I've proved it yet again when when we were working with music and different editing skills that I was trying to learn. I could not pick up the beat at all and everything. I I don't know. I might be tone deaf. Is that what tone deaf Mm -hmm. is? Not being able to pick up rhythm? So perfect pitch you have not. (laughs) Well, (laughs) melody is is tone. Rhythm is just the the tempo. Which explains my uh, music. I couldn't tell you the last time I listened to music. I mean, it's it's. I think I listened for a few days when Bon Jovi had the Bon Jovi channel on Sirius XM. Outside of that, I couldn't tell you the last time I listened to any kind of music. Oh God, what a sad life. Yeah, but you'll drop some coin to go to to go see Bon Jovi every chance you get. Seen them <laughs> nine times, I think. Nine times. Nine times. Nine times. Nine times. And yeah, I've been to less than 25 concerts in my life. Wow, that's impressive. Them, Guns N' Roses, Springsteen, and uh, Billy Joel. Even though Bon Jovi's kind of went country, you're still down? I do like their country rock. Not all of it, but I do. It turned me on to some, and I'm starting to like country rock. I like, I guess, some classic country, you know, and I... I, Do you know the the band Big Dollar Sign Rich? They sing uh, We're Coming to Your City, and I like that kind of country music. It was the theme song for Monday Night Football. Yeah, I like that kind of stuff and everything. 
But, okay, uh, well, I'll look them up. So, Ed, uh, anything else while we have the editor du jour on? No, the only other question I would have for you is, um, have you ever worked with Pro Tools on the Mac? No. Um, I thought about it for a little while, and then I just saw the song and dance that people have to go through to make it work in terms of it's it's no different than the song and dance that anybody else would have to go through as a Pro Tools user, but the, the infrastructure is crazy. As I understand it, somebody will correct me, I'm sure. As I understand it, you buy the software that works for a while, then you have to subscribe to it or subscribe to certain parts of it. And it's not cheap. It's not a cheap program. It's not a cheap program. It's not something where M-Audio does a lot of innovation. So... They're usually the last person to integrate some new feature that other DAWs have gotten. Now, one could argue that it's because they want to make sure that the technology is mature before they integrate it into their product. But it also can hold a lot of people back, and you're paying a great deal of money for something that's kind of restrictive in some ways. And I just don't find that worth the time to learn, to be honest. Why would somebody choose to use Pro Tools over Reaper? The industry and marketing say Pro Tools is the thing. Right. That, that was my first exposure to it as an instructor, helping people wanting to get into audio editing. In the beginning, everything seemed to be pointing toward Pro Tools. That's what was accepted by the New York State Commission for the Blind as a product to purchase for them. You know, I see now that there are so many better options. And there was a point where Pro Tools was king, even around mm -hmm. our circles. You know, if, if you had Sonar or Pro Tools, you were awesome. But now you've got Pro Tools and Logic on the Mac, and you've got Reaper and Samplitude and Windows, and there's other things that are popping up. Hey, full disclosure, I have Reaper and I'm pretty freaking awesome. Well, there you go. Yeah. Brian is a legend in his own mind. <laughs> legend in his own time and mind. So there you uh, go. Good. Well, Derek, this has been very informative. I know Derek and I are continuing to work together, so you can expect more magic coming out of that Real Blind Tech show. For now, we are That Real Blind Tech Show. You can uh, email us in, thatrealblindtechshow at gmail.com. Join us on the Facebook in our Facebook group, That Real Blind Tech Show. Tweet us at Blind Tech Show or leave us an old school phone message at 929-367-1005. And for now, we are out.